I'm excited today to kick off a brand new series that we're in on parables. And if you're not really familiar with what parables are, you've never really heard that word. I know it's kind of a, we use it a lot in church. Uh, if you're not familiar with that, parables are stories that Jesus frequently told uh, back in his day to, to illustrate and demonstrate profound divine truths about, uh, about the word of God and about his father. And most of the stories, they were easily remembered. And, and in some cases, they were even relatable uh, to the audience that he was, he was speaking to. And I'll, I'll give you an example of one. This isn't the one I'm preaching on today, but here's an example of what he would do to relate to people. He would, he would take a group of farmers, a group of sheep farmers, and he'd be like, hey guys, uh, just imagine if you had 100 sheep. And all these guys would be like, okay, I, yeah, I, got a, I, can, I can picture 100 sheep. Uh, okay, now imagine one of those sheep got out of the pen and that thing got lost and you'd be upset, right? Yeah, of course, I'd, you know, I'd want to find it. He said, right, you, you would go and you would leave the 99 and you would go find, uh, find the one. And uh, the farmers would be like, yeah, that totally makes sense. And when, when uh, we get that sheep and we bring it back, we're going to celebrate, we're going to be happy because, you know, this is part of our income and this is part of our livelihood. And so everybody's related to this story that Jesus is telling him, uh, telling them. And then Jesus would always just end and he'd be like, well, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. All of heaven rejoices when one sinner repents over 99 that don't repent. And so uh, that's, that's what a parable is. Now, on the other side, there were also parables where Jesus would tell these stories and everybody would just be confused. They wouldn't, they'd be like, what did that even mean? And uh, sometimes he would explain it to his disciples and give them the, uh, the wisdom and knowledge of what he was talking about. And they would ask him, you know, Lord, why are you, why are you speaking to all these people in parables? Why aren't you telling them what, what it means? And then he would go on to quote a uh, prophecy from Isaiah where it would say, uh, People will be hearing but never understanding. They will be seeing but never perceiving, and their hearts will become calloused. And that—that's a prayer of mine that I don't want us to be a church like that. Our ears aren't open to hearing, and our eyes can't perceive what's going on around us, and our hearts become callous to the word of God. And and I, that, I pray that every single Sunday and every every single time that I preach, my prayer is always includes. Lord, open up our ears to receive what you have for us. Lord, your word says your word doesn't return void. And so, Father, I just, I proclaim that promise over your word that's going out today in power. And so we always want to have that heart that's ready to receive what God has for us. Now, today I want to kick off our, our, first, uh, our first installment of this parable series, and I want to talk about forgiveness. Now, who in here has ever been treated badly by somebody? Let's be honest. Raise your hand. Y'all are so much more honest than the first uh, people at 8.30. Only like three people. I'm like, y'all are some liars. <laughs> but I forgive you. It's okay. I forgave them. And um, who in here has ever forgiven that person that, uh, that, that wronged you, that hurt you, that did something wrong to you? Okay, good. Now, here's where you got to be really honest. Who in here has not forgiven somebody that, that wronged you or did something bad to you? Okay, yeah, me too. That, my hand is, is up with you in agreement to that. Well, in this parable, Jesus is going to teach us that you cannot grip onto bitterness and grip onto the gospel at the same time. And so I want us to get that today, that you can't embrace the forgiveness of God and then not extend it out towards his people. And Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer uh, in Matthew 6, what did he say? Lord, forgive us our debts as we forget our debtors, or some say, forgive us our trespasses. We forgive those who trespassed against us. And then what I love, well, what I don't, I kind of don't love because a lot of people do this, and I've been guilty of this myself in the past. We just stop right there at the, and yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And that's it. 
we stop. But Jesus keeps on going right there. He, uh, he keeps on talking. And what he says, I think, is, is pretty clear. And it's very, very important for us as believers to, to grasp in verses 14 and 15. And he just says, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive yours. And that's, that's, that's heavy. That's a lot of weight in, that, in those words. And he's telling you, like, he's not saying that you need to forgive just because it's going to make you sleep better. Yes, it might make you feel better about yourself. It might help your day be a little bit better. You might not be as bitter once you forgive somebody. Uh, you might sleep a little bit better. But he's not saying it's just going to do that. He's given us a command that we have to forgive people, that if you've embraced God's forgiveness, we have to extend it. And this parable that we're going to be in, Jesus unpacks this, this uh, idea of forgiveness in Matthew chapter 18, where we'll be today, uh, when Peter asked him a question. Now, to give you some context of this chapter, uh, this is kind of known as like the, the uh, how you handle sin and how you handle conflict with, with brothers in the church and sisters in the church and just what that kind of looks like to, to get re- reconciliation. And so Jesus is telling these disciples as he's teaching them this, he's like, well, if you've got somebody that's done something against you or you know that they've sinned, you, you go to that person, you tell them their fault, and if they repent and they're, they're sorry and they change their ways, you've won your brother back. Now, if they don't listen to you, you go and grab another couple of people from the church and you go to them and then you you address it and you get the church involved and like this is the path to to reconciliation and so we pull up on this parable that Jesus is about to say and right after he explains all this to the disciples it looks to me like Peter gets a little bit concerned and a little a little worried about what he was just told by Jesus and it says in verse 21 that Peter asks Jesus Lord how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me up to seven times now, as I was reading in my study Bible, uh, preparing for this message, uh, Peter already knew that the answer to his question was three times, because back then the rabbis would teach their disciples that, hey, if somebody wrongs you, you forgive them three times. After that, then you cut them off. And so Peter asks this question, and then he's offering a, uh, an answer. Now, I read this, I read the Bible, and I like to laugh sometimes. Anybody else? Just like, trying to make the Bible funny. And uh, so I'm, I'm reading this and, and uh, I imagine Peter just kind of getting sassy with him. And he's like, how many times should I forgive him, Jesus? Seven times. Now, and I'll also say this, the chosen has completely ruined me on my view of the disciples and how they look and how they talk and how they act. It's just ruined me. And so now every time I read uh, the Bible, I just picture these guys and, uh, you know, I'm just glad they've got a tan. And, um, <coughs> and so, so again, I, I, I read this and I see Peter and I hear him in my head going, how many times should I forgive him, Jesus? Seven times? Like, what's, what's the answer? And I think of those disciples and I picture Matthew as he is in, in The Chosen and I, hear, I just see him counting because he's a number guy. One, Rabbi taught us three. One, two, three, four, five. That's six. That's double plus one. He's like wanting us to even go further than that. Like, that's, that's crazy. I think of Thomas the doubter, you know, who's just kind of an Eeyore. And he's like, well, I doubt anybody would ever forgive me. Like, must be nice. Three times would be cool. I'd be happy with once. Like, that's just how I read the Bible. Like, maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just me. And then everybody else is just like, man, Peter is getting sassy with our Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody better rein him in. And then Jesus being blunt like he is, 
He looks at Peter and he tells him, I don't say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Some versions say 70 times. I've heard people ask me, you know, is it 70 times seven? Is it, is it 70? And my, always my response is it's not about the number. It's not about the number. If it was about the number, church, it would mean that you'd have to forgive somebody 490 times and keep up with that for 490 times. Then on the 491st time, that's when you uh, forgive or just cut them off and then you're done with them and it's game on and you can go about your business. But Jesus is telling us here that it's not about that. It's not about it. So Peter asks this question and then Jesus goes on to do one of my favorite things that he does throughout the Gospels, and that's the theme of our, our series uh, over the next four weeks, is he tells a parable. He tells the story of a king that wants to settle a debt. And he starts in verse 24 with this story, and he says, When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Now, back when I first started reading the Bible, because I didn't really get in church till after, after high school, and, man, I'm reading this, and your boy only knows USD, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know what biblical talents and denaries and denarii's and all that stuff is. You see, I just put a redneck spin on denarii. I said denarii. <laughs> denarii. Come on now, somebody. And i got to recover, Jace. Focus. And... Uh, <laughs> Well, as you're reading that, you're probably like me and like, what is a talent? I don't even know what a, what does that even mean? And um, you probably don't realize the magnitude of this use that Jesus is, is telling here when he says 10,000 talents, but he's actually picking the largest number known in the language and he's using the largest form of currency. So you've had, you got denarii, which is a smaller form of uh, currency, and then you've got a talent, which is a larger form of currency. Now, as I was reading some commentaries on this, I came across Josephus, who was a historian, and many of you have probably heard of him. He's one of the most famous historians of that time. And Josephus, he wrote down that the taxes for that area where Jesus was telling this story, the total amount of taxes owed by all the people collectively was about 600 talents. And this guy owed 10,000 talents. So this dummy in Jesus' story, he owes the king more money than probably even exists at this time. I wish I, I probably should have looked up like the message version because I know we always like to, to laugh at that sometimes and make jokes about the message version. But I imagine it saying something like a, the, the servant owed the king like a gigatrillion dollars because it was just such a, a large number. And first off, like for me, I just want to know what you do to rack up that kind of debt. Like, I can think of all the things in life I want to, uh, to buy, and I, it ain't going to equal that much. And uh, I just want to get my house paid off, and I'd be, I'd be good. But obviously, this, uh, this master is not very happy with his servant, and he decides that this is the punishment. He says, since the servant had no way to pay it back, his, commander, or his uh, master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. If I'm this dude, I'm freaking out. I'm worried. He just told me he's about to sell me. He's about to sell my wife that I love. He's about to sell my kids whom I, who I love. And he's about to sell every possession that I have. This is a bad place to be. You don't want to be into a place. The bank can take all your possessions away, but they can't sell your, your wife and your kids. Like This is a bad spot. And the servant responds in the most <laughs> idiotic way. He says this, at this, the, uh, the slave fell face down before him and said, be patient with me, Lord, and I will pay you everything. I say this is dumb because there's no way he could do it. 
Like he owes way too much money. And just for some simple math on, on kind of to show you the difference between uh, denaries and denarii and talents, uh, 6,000 denarii equals one talent. One talent equals 20 years of daily wages. 10,000 talents equals 200,000 years of daily wages. That's a lot. I'm a guess. I can't count that high, but I'm guessing that's in the billions. And I don't think that uh, he's going to be able to pay that back. I don't think if he won the Kentucky lottery 10 times, he's going to be able to pay that back. And so he's racked up all of this debt. And guess what? It gets even crazier. The master's like, he's not like, man, that's cool. I believe in you. I'll let your yes be yes. If you can go and earn that money, uh, do so, and it's, it's good. I'll, I'll, I'll receive it. No, the text says that the master had compassion and forgave the debt, released him, and let him go on about his business. That's the kind of king that I would want. I imagine these disciples, their mouths are just wide open and like, oh my goodness, how has he done this? Why would he do that? What kind of king does that? I thought kings were mean and were dictators and got what they wanted and you had to give it to them right as they asked for it. This is the kind of king that I would want if I messed up. And so this slave, he's been forgiven and he goes on about, about his business. And um, as soon as he walks out of, the, out of the castle, out of the palace, it says in verse 28, but that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him 100 denarii. He grabbed him, started choking him, and said, pay me what you owe. So this slave, he's just forgiven, been forgiven like something nobody else probably will ever get this chance again. He's forgiven this massive debt, and he leaves. And no sooner as he walks out the door and starts going back home, he's walking down the streets, comes across this guy that owes him just a hundred denarii, and he grabs him by the, cho- uh, by the throat and chokes him and demands that he gives him the money. The slave didn't owe the king money. He just owed another man this money. So he grabs him. And again, as I was reading in my study Bible, I learned that this was actually uh, Roman culture for back in the day. And if somebody owed you money and they weren't giving it to you, you could go and grab them by the throat and publicly shame them uh, and let everybody know, hey, you don't want to do business with God because he's not good for his word. He's not going to pay you back. And he, he owes me money. Now, interestingly enough, this guy has this same response that, uh, that he had with the king. He said, Lord, or he said to his fellow slave, he fell down. He began begging him. He said, be patient with me. I'll pay you back. But this guy wasn't willing. On the contrary, he took that guy, threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. Now, like I told you, he owed this guy 100 denarii, which is still a pretty big debt. Uh, for, simple, for simplicity, for us, it would be if somebody like owed you like $10,000. Let's say somebody owed you $10,000. Now, if you were sitting, somebody, sitting next to somebody in church today and you knew that they owed you $10,000, you're probably not just going to be able to sit there quietly. You're probably going to be like, hey, man, where's my money, right? Anybody or is it just me? Like you'd probably be singing that last song like, this is how I find my bath. <laughs> you still owe $10,000. That's, that's, I mean, you would, because that's a lot of money. And I, you could do a lot with $10,000. Now, 
It's not like this guy didn't owe him anything, but compared to this debt that he owed to the king, it wasn't anything. It was nothing. Like when this guy says that, hey, please just be patient with me. I'll pay you back. It's kind of believable. Like it might take some time, but you could come up with with $10,000. He can come up with 100 denarii. You're not going to come up with billions and billions of dollars all at once. And then it says in verse 31 that, There were some other slaves that were standing by and they were witnessing what was going on in the streets and they were disturbed. They were deeply distressed and they went and reported to their master everything that had happened. So they go, they see this guy grab him by the throat. They run back to the king. Hey, king, man, did you, man, you'll never believe what just happened. You remember that guy that you just forgave that massive debt on and you told him he didn't owe you anything and he was good to go. You didn't sell his kids. You didn't sell his wife. You didn't sell his belongings. You remember that guy? Yeah, I remember him. Man, no sooner as he got out in the streets, he, man, he grabbed this dude by the throat that owed him just a little bit of money. He threw him into jail and now that guy has to stay there until he pays uh, him back. Anybody want to guess how that king's going to respond? Not good. He's not going to be happy. He's ticked. And it says, so the king summoned him in And his master said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. You begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And so this this king is so, so mad that it says in the next verse, his master got so angry, he handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So he didn't just throw this guy in jail like he did with the other slave. No, he threw him in jail and said, okay, now you're in jail, but you're going to be tortured. It's getting worse. And I'm sure Peter and every other disciple, and if we were listening to this story, we would probably be guilty of having their same response. Yes, torture him, throw him in jail. This dude's awful. Like, man, he was forgiven so much. How's he going to act like this? Yeah, give him what he deserves. If it was today's culture, we'd be like, cancel culture, get him off. Don't let him have a platform. All of that kind of stuff. And then Jesus, again, just drops another little truth on them and says, so my heavenly father will also do to you if each one of you does not forgive your brother from your heart. And he's like, oh, man, wasn't expecting that one, Jesus. That's a hard one to swallow. But church, he's talking to you and he's talking to me. He's saying that if you don't show forgiveness, you don't know forgiveness. If you're going to receive forgiveness, you have to give forgiveness. And we've probably all heard, you've probably heard it said before that uh, hurt people hurt people. We've heard that. We've heard that healed people heal people. Well, I'm just, I just want to say that forgiven people forgive people. They do. If you've been given the forgiveness of God, we should then have a heart that wants to be forgiving of other people. And we're not just going to quote a Lord's prayer and just not have any meaning behind it. That it's the people who have been shown the forgiveness of God that knows what it means to be forgiving to others. This is how the gospel works, church. You and I, we were enemies of God and the goodness of God came running after us. It's not just some fancy, pretty song that we sing. No, the goodness of God came after us. He ran after us. He forgave us of our sins. And while those people, when they crucified Jesus, they hung him on the cross, they put nails in his feet, they put nails in his wrist. And when they did that, the whole time they're mocking him and Jesus uh, prayed to them and he gave his life for them to pay for their debt. He gave his life for them. So if forgiveness is this important to God, how do we do it? How do we do it? 
The first one that I see in this parable is that we need to understand that there is a real debt owed. There's a real debt owed. You and I owe a debt we cannot pay for. Nothing we do, no matter how much we serve in the church, no matter how much we give, no matter how much we do, no matter how many good works that we do, none of that will buy our way into heaven. We had to be given the forgiveness. Someone needed to come in and have mercy on us. And there's only one person that has the authority and the ability to forgive our sins and to forgive our debts and to wipe it all clean. And that's Jesus Christ. And because of the mercy shown to us in our hearts, we should be changed and and changed towards the people that have wronged us. And let me make this clear, because I think this is really, really important. So catch this. In the family of Jesus, forgiveness cannot be misunderstood for minimization. Jesus is not asking you to minimize the hurt and the trauma that you have experienced. But you can forgive what you can't forget. You can be hurt and have forgiveness, but you're still going to have those memories. I'll put it to you like this, and here's my principle. God is not waiting for you to generate forgetfulness. He's waiting for you to generate forgiveness. He's not asking you to forget. He's asking you to forgive. Forgiveness does not mean you're staying in an abusive relationship. I think so many times a lot of us, we have things happen to us and we get wronged. And, and uh, we're, here's our response. I've been guilty of this. Man, it's, it's okay. It doesn't bother me. It's no big deal. Just, it is what it is. Nothing I can do about it. Oh, well. And I think this starts at a really young age for many of us. We, we have things happen to us and we just begin to be taught it's okay, it doesn't bother me, it's no big deal. And then when we get older and somebody really hurts you or somebody really abuses you, you begin to normalize a behavior that God calls sin. And that's a bad place to be. The Christian community has got to stop minimizing sin. And if it feels like something bad is happening to you right now, maybe you're going through a situation and you just feel like you don't know what to do. Listen, it's okay to say, listen, I know the price that Jesus Christ paid for what you were doing, what sin you were doing. I'm not okay with it. I'm not just going to sit here quietly and say I'm okay with it because forgiveness isn't minimization. It's acknowledgement. It's acknowledging it. I'll give you an example in the Old Testament. Joseph, his brothers, sold him into slavery. They were, they were good if he just died. They sold him into slavery, and then Joseph ends up getting pretty high up in, in, the, uh, in the nation, and he has all this authority, and then eventually later down the road, he has the opportunity to confront his brothers years later. He didn't say, it's okay, man. It's okay, brothers. Y'all uh, had my coat ripped apart that dad gave me. You threw me in that pit. You sold me into slavery. Ah, oh, that's okay. Y'all are here now. Let's grab the guitar, man. Let's, let's sing some campfire songs. Let's catch up. Tell me about dad. Tell me about my little brother that I haven't met. Tell me, tell me how your lives are doing. No, he didn't do any of that. His response was, what you did was evil. It was evil. He just called it as it was. And if someone has hurt you, you don't have to call it any less than that. So don't minimize the hurt that you've experienced. Acknowledge the hurt. It broke my heart a few months ago. There was a lady uh, out in the lobby that I had a conversation with, and 
she was actually staying in the Merriman House, which is a, a, a domestic abuse they shelter where they, they help women who've been in abusive relationships. And she comes up to me and she's like, man, I've been trying to get close to God. And I've just been, re- I've been watching a, a lot of sermons online and I've been reading my Bible and I, I heard this one sermon on forgiveness. And, and uh, I just want to know, man, I really felt like, uh, it, was he trying to tell me that I need to go back to my husband who's been beating me and, back, and take my kids back and go back and live home and go back to that, that situation? I'm like, no, listen, listen, if, if you are being abused and things are happening to you like that, no, God's not trying to call you and tell you that you need to go back into that situation. That's not healthy. That's, that's dangerous for you, but it's okay to acknowledge that hurt that you have experienced. So this, this parable that we're reading today, it should inspire us to see our lives as having the king forgive our debt. The king paid for it. And this parable is a picture of the gospel. He took the debt and paid for our forgiveness. Corey Ten Boom, I don't know if y'all know who she is. She's pretty famous. She lived in Holland under the Nazi regime during the Holocaust. And her her and her family, her parents, they... uh, they would hide their Jewish friends from the Nazis and they would bring them into their home and they would try to get them to a safe place. And eventually they were found out and discovered and they were actually captured and thrown into concentration camps uh, with the Jews. And her sister Betsy ended up dying. Now, Corey survived the Holocaust and uh, she got out and she began to, to preach the gospel and she began to share with people about her experience and what God has done for her and how God used her to, to rescue people out of that. And she would write books about uh, how to extend grace to people and how she was even giving grace to, to, the, to the Nazis. And one time she went back to Germany and she began to speak and she was preaching uh, to a room full of people uh, that were Nazis. And she said she, as she was preaching, she could just feel the heaviness of their shame and, and, and a guilt for what they had done. And it just felt like it was crushing everybody in there. And she would tell them, man, you know, Paul was a mercenary and he was killing Christians and God saved him. And now, man, he's done all this in the New Testament. He's done this and done that. And he would tell them, she would tell them about God's goodness. And after this one particular speech, um, she was shaking hands with people. She must have been Baptist. She was out in the foyer shaking hands like a good old Baptist preacher. And um, as she's shaking hands, she sees this guy approaching, and she recognizes him. And he was a guard at Ravensbrook, where she was at and where her sister died. And he comes up to her and compliments her message and extends his hand to shake hers, and she refused to shake it. She wouldn't do it. The man said, I was a guard at Ravensbrook, and since then I've become a Christian And I know that God has forgiven my sins. Will you please forgive mine? And he reached out his hand again. Corey said that she she stood there feeling like it was forever. She felt like minutes went by, but it had to have only been a couple of seconds. And she she stood there thinking, I whose sins have been forgiven over and over could not forgive Betsy dying in that place. She said that it wasn't but a moment, but it felt like forever. And she said, as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had to do, I knew I had to forgive him. Jesus said, if you don't forgive trespasses, your father will not forgive yours. I knew this not only as a command from God, but as a daily experience. I had a home in Holland for recovering Holocaust victims and saw that those who were able to forgive their enemies were able to move on and rebuild their lives. But those who were unable to forgive 
stayed stuck as though they had never left the concentration camp. But as I stood there in front of this man, I prayed, Jesus, help me. I can lift my hand, but you have to supply the feeling. So mechanically, I extended my hand, and as I did, an incredible thing took place. A current started in my shoulder and went down my hand, and a healing warmth flooded my whole being. Tears filled my eyes, and I said to the man, I forgive you, brother, with all of my heart. And I had never known the love of God so tensely as I did in that moment. Even then, I realized it was not my love, but the power of the Holy Spirit. How could she do that, church? Someone who was a Holocaust survivor, watch, who had to watch or walk through this camp naked at times and, in, and just full of shame and watched her sister wither away and die and saw people beaten and put into gas chambers. How could she do this? Because she knew Christ. She had embraced her forgiven debt And now when she had every temptation to probably grab this guy by the throat and said, you let my sister die. You tortured my friends. You let them die. You sent them to be murdered. She had every opportunity to not give forgiveness and probably every right, but she stopped. She prayed first and forgave a trespass that can only be forgiven by the love and the power of the Holy Spirit. Church, we can't harbor unforgiveness. It will devour you. It will devour you. I heard an interesting story one time, and it's really short. This guy saw a baby hippo, and um, it didn't have any mother around. He saw this cute little thing. He's like, man, I'll, I'll rescue this thing. So he rescues this little baby hippo, and he names it Humphrey. He takes it back home, and he begins to feed it as a pet, and it grows up, and it killed him. He killed him. This little thing that he thought was cute, he began to feed and it grew up because its nature was to devour him. You don't make a hippo a, pant, uh, a pet. It's not a pet. A Yorkie's a pet, not a, not a hippo. But here's what I want you to get out of that. Be careful you're not feeding unforgiveness because its desire is to devour you. Its desire is to steal your joy, to steal your peace, to steal your love, to steal your forgiveness that you've been given and steal the forgiveness that God wants you to give to other people. In Medellin, Colombia, there was a boy named Didier. I I, I don't know how to pronounce Colombian names, so we're going to say Didier. At 11 years old, Didier witnessed the brutal uh, murder of his mother as she was shot 38 times. Now, as a reaction of his mother's killing, a 20-year-old Didier went down a very self-destructive path and began using drugs, alcohol, and crime for about a four-year stretch. He said, in drugs and alcohol, I looked for the love that was taken away from me with the assassination of my mother. And during those four years, I began to think about retaliation and vengeance. And through people in his neighborhood, he discovered who the killer was, and he knew that he actually didn't live very far away So Didier started collecting guns. He actually found, he got two grenades. And he said at night he would cry in his room and think of ways that he would kill his mother's assassin. But he never built up the courage to follow through. And then one day, a friend of his who was a Christian invited Didier to church with him 
And this invitation changed his life. And as he went in and he heard this message of God, as he heard about the love and forgiveness of God, he realized the hatred that he was harboring in his heart was consuming his soul and it was actually killing him. It was ruining his life because he could not forgive this guy that had killed his mother whom he loved. And it was this day in church that he found the strength and the courage to forgive the man that had murdered his mother. And one day shortly after this, He was out in the streets and he saw the guy he had been told had murdered his mother sitting on the street curb. And he went down and sat right there on the street with him. And as he sat next to the guy that assassinated his mother, he looked at him and he said, man, why did you kill my mom? And immediately the guy didn't respond. He just started crying and sobbing and was broken. And he told the man, I don't know why you killed my mother, but I forgive you. And Didier embraced the man. And once again, the man started crying more and more. But check this out. Sometime later, Didier, he discovered that it was actually somebody else. It wasn't even this man. He was just somebody that did that for work. And a friend uh, of Didier's came up to him and said, man, have you really forgiven this guy that has uh, killed your mother? And Didier's response was, was this, yeah, I have, even though I may never see him. And when his friend was assured that uh, he had forgiven his mother's killer, he said to, to Didier, man, it was actually my brother that killed your mom. And I just haven't, I haven't had the courage to tell you. And Didier's response was this, man, can you tell me where he's at? I know you just said that he's going through some stuff right now. And I want to find him because I want to give him my forgiveness. I want to try and help him. God's forgiven me, so I forgive forgive him. Church, forgiven people, forgive people. Healed people, they help other people get healed. And maybe you're saying, I still don't know how I'm supposed to do that. How am I supposed to give forgiveness? How can I forgive what can't be forgotten? I think it comes down to this. I think it comes down to the same thing for Corey Ten Boom. I think it comes down to the same thing for Didier. You view that situation through the lens of the cross. And if you know that story, or if you don't, Jesus was beaten and mocked, hung on a cross. They nailed his feet, his hands. And in the middle of all that, Jesus Christ, our Lord, cried out, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. Can you imagine giving your life for the whole world and asking for the guys that are stabbing you in the side, asking for your father to forgive them, even them. And right before his last breath, he said to God, Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. And in that moment, as he took his last breath, that veil was torn in two. He died for your sin. He died for my sin. And he begged for your forgiveness. He did what he did not have to do. But being the king in his own parable, he was that king. Jesus was sent for you because that cost could never be paid for. It could only be paid for by hell or by death on a cross. And that's what Jesus did. We've said it before that hell isn't a place that God sends bad people. Hell is a place where God sends people to pay for their own sins. But you don't have to. 
Let Jesus pay for it. He's already given his life for you. And I'm so grateful that God is a good, good father, that he loves you so much that he sent his own one and only begotten son to die for you. And because of that great forgiveness that he has given us, now he commands you and me, all of us, to forgive other people that have wronged us. We can forgive, but we don't have to forget. And that's why he taught the disciples to pray by saying, forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespassed against us. And he wants to forgive you of whatever debt you've, you've incurred to him tonight. You, maybe you've sinned against God, but he's still offering forgiveness to you today. He doesn't want you to be tortured for eternity and thrown into jail to be tortured. He doesn't want you to be tortured by unforgiveness now as you're alive. He wants you to say yes to him. He wants, you, he wants you to be adopted into his family. He wants to call you son and daughter. He wants you to walk out of those doors different than you came in. He doesn't want you to leave this place with holding on to bitterness and anger. He wants you to forgive the people that have hurt you because we're all broken and undeserving of the forgiveness, but he still offers it.